0: Value. What gives an object value? What value do you assign to the church? Better question, more importantly, what value does Jesus assign to the church? So the message to the church at Ephesus begins with the identification of the one sending the message, Jeff, there's someone wanting the door with the identification of the one sending the message. He is identified as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, last week we worked together or through the process of identifying the seven stars, the seven angels of the churches. Briefly, Let me remind you, we explored three possibilities of who these angels symbolized. First of all, there are those who believe that the angels were the human messengers who took the actual physical letter that John had written and delivered it to the church. Others believe, based upon how the word angel is used throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, That the angels referred to are actually guardian angels assigned to the individual churches. And although both of those interpretations have some merit, I don't believe they are the best interpretation when you consider uh, all the factors involved. Therefore, the conclusion that uh, was drawn from all the evidence in Scripture was that the seven angels are actually the seven pastors of the seven local churches. But there's another question that we need to answer before we get into the rest of the Lord's message to the church at Ephesus. And the question is this, what do the seven golden lampstands represent? What do the seven golden lampstands represent? Well, it's much easier to answer this question than the one we had last week because the Lord Jesus himself gives us the interpretation and all we have to do is check the immediate context and just go back to chapter 1 and the very last verse, chapter, verse 20, and look at what we read. Jesus speaking, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the, what's it say? Seven churches. So Jesus is gracious to us, and he graciously answers The question for us, the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and what do we see? Jesus has a special message for each one of the seven churches. Now, let me remind you once again that the number seven in Scripture, and in particular in the book of Revelation, signifies completion. So when Jesus addresses the seven churches, the reality is he's addressing the church throughout the church age. And whatever he has to say to the churches then applies to us today, both corporately and individually. So in the first vision of Revelation, John uh, saw Jesus, the Lord of the church, in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, this really symbolizes a very wonderful and encouraging truth, and that is this, that Jesus is in the midst of the church. His presence is among his people. And we think about what's going on in the Ukraine, and I brought this out during our prayer meeting. I hope that the churches in the Ukraine are going back and reading the book of Revelation and reading these opening chapters of Revelation, and they're being encouraged and they're being strengthened from the fact that they are not alone, that the Lord Jesus is in their midst, that the Lord Jesus is there with them, guiding them, protecting them, encouraging them. The text teaches us that Jesus is intimately, consciously, and continuously connected to the church. We need to add as well, particularly in this day and age, that Jesus has promised that he will both protect and empower the church. Jesus said, Matthew 16, 18, that he would build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's no danger of the church ever becoming extinct. The church cannot, will not go the way of the dodo bird. The church may be weak. The church may be small, The church may be persecuted, but the church will always survive. Well, before we look at the second part of the Lord's message to the church at Ephesus, we need to spend some time considering John's description of the lampstand that Jesus is walking in the midst of. Now, notice John describes it, these lampstands, as golden, golden. Have you ever stopped and asked the question, why did John use that term to describe the church as golden lampstands? Keep in mind that the Holy Spirit inspired John to deliberately and intentionally use this word. This word was not chosen by random. John didn't pull out his thesaurus and say, well, what's a good word here? No. The Holy Spirit inspired him to say that these were seven golden lampstands. And when he does this, he conveys a very important truth about the church. You say, what is is the truth? Here it is. It's almost so simple that we might miss it. When John describes the church as being seven golden lampstands, you know what he's saying? The church has value. The church is valuable. It teaches us that the church is precious in the eyes of Christ. Is it any coincidence that gold is labeled as a what? A precious metal. Not all metals. Cast iron is not a precious metal. Aluminum is not a precious metal. Gold is a precious metal. Gold has always been valuable and it's still valuable today. The more gold you possess, the wealthier you are. For example, the Bible says this about Abraham. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So, what is the conclusion that we can draw? The conclusion is the church has. Value. Sadly, there are those who profess faith in Christ who will not associate with a church. You know what they're saying? I just don't see much value in the church. You don't understand the church then. To be able to stay away from the church, the gathering of God's people, the very thing that Jesus died for, the very thing that is called golden. You're just saying, I just don't see much value in it. Well, you need to reconsider your position. This description of golden teaches us that the church is not ordinary. Gold isn't ordinary. If I had a pocket full of gold and threw it down the aisle here, we'd see some mayhem, wouldn't we? Gold is precious. Gold is protected. Likewise, the church is precious. And it must be protected at all costs. And Jesus sees great value in the church. Let me take that one step further. It is Jesus who assigned this value to the church. John didn't come up with this on his own. Jesus has assigned this value to the church. The church is golden. It's valuable. And you know, if we do a a survey of the scriptures, we can find that many times God's presence is associated being with his people with gold. Say, what do you mean? If we go back and we consider the tabernacle, we see that many of the fixtures and the utensils in the tabernacle were to be made of gold. In fact, Exodus 25, 17 says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. But we move on to the temple. When Solomon built the temple, many of the fixtures there again, they were overlaid with gold. Go back and read the description of the temple. You know the thing that blows me away? It says that the floor of the temple was overlaid with gold. What was a tabernacle? It was the place where God met with his people. What was a temple? It was a place where God met with his people. So you see how this is carried right on through by John? It's golden lampstands. It's associated with God's presence among his people. And I'm sure you know this the more that you refine gold, the purer it becomes. And the purer it becomes, the more valuable it is. And you know how gold becomes pure? It has to be refined. You know how gold is refined? If you watch Gold Rush, you know this, amen. It's put in a flame. It's heated to something like 2,500 degrees. And what does it do? It keeps all of the impurities. It floats them to the top. Now, think about this. The church is described as golden lampstands, gold can survive the heat in the flames. If you take a piece of paper and throw it in the fire, what happens? It burns up. Take a piece of wood, you throw it in the fire, what happens? It burns up. In other words, whatever value it had going into the fire, it loses in the fire. But when gold goes into the fire, guess what? it comes out more valuable than when it went into the fire. See? And God refines us, doesn't he? And it may be, it very well will be painful when he refines us. It's uncomfortable when he refines us. But you know, when we go into the fire, We're not the same coming out of the fire, are we? We're more pure. We're more valuable. Think about the church. God uses persecution to do what? To refine the church, to purify the church. And thereby makes the church of greater value to the kingdom of God. So when John describes the church as golden lampstands, he's referring to its value. And maybe you understood this about the church, but if you haven't come to understand the value of the church, I hope you'll go home and meditate on this. We need to move on. There's another symbolism here associated with the lampstands that we need to highlight. And let me begin by asking a very simple question. What is the purpose of a lampstand? Well, the purpose of a lampstand is to what? It's to give off light. But here's what we got to keep in mind. The lampstand is not the source of light. The lampstand is only the instrument by which light is delivered. A lamp can give off light. A a lamp can shine the light. But the lamp, the lampstand on its own doesn't produce any light. And keep in mind here that John is drawing from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah's vision of the lampstands, the golden lampstands. If you remember back when we looked at that, by the way, if you want to picture this in your mind, just picture a menorah, okay? You see when the holidays roll around and you'll see happy Hanukkah and they have what normally they have, either the Star of David or menorah. This is, this is what we're talking about with the lampstand. So these lampstands would have a, a bowl of oil that would feed each one of the seven flutes, if you will, or tubes through which your oil would flow, and when it was lit, it would produce the light. So the light was the result of the oil flowing through the lamp. The oil, as we learned before, as we've previously seen, represents the Holy Spirit. And just as a lampstand that has no oil can't produce light, so to a church that is devoid of the Holy Spirit can't even begin to produce the smallest speck of light. Apart from the power of the oil, the lampstand is no better than a fancy paperweight simply taking up space. And a lampstand that doesn't fulfill, that doesn't produce light is not fulfilling the purpose for which it is intended. A lightless lamp is a contradiction Likewise, a church that no longer operates by the power of the Holy Spirit cannot, it will not produce any light and therefore it's not fulfilling the purpose and is no better than a lightless lamp. The power of the church is not found in its buildings, its facilities, its grounds. A church's power is not found in the number of programs that it has. A church may be beautiful, but if it's not operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, that's all it is. Beautiful, but it's powerless. the power of the church is in the filling of the holy spirit if you remember back to paul's letter to the church at ephesus we have that great passage where he tells us to what to be filled with the spirit and to keep on being filled with the spirit and that's what the church has to understand the church has to be filled with the Spirit, and it needs to keep being filled with the Spirit. And by the way, it is not wrong to ask God to give us more of His Spirit. So the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. G.K. Beale says Jesus is always in the midst, in their midst, and therefore is keenly aware of how they are living. Now think about that. Jesus knows what is going on in his church. Mentioned in prayer meeting that my brother-in-law's church is having some trouble and it's just a mess. I hope that pastor knows and realizes he's not alone. Why? Jesus is there. Jesus knows what's going on. Jesus knows what's going on at Grace Community Church at 138 Mary Street, Berea, Kentucky, 40403. Jesus is acutely aware of what's going on in Westside Baptist Church right up the street here. Jesus knows what's going on in every church in every country. Why? Because he is where he wants to be. And where does he want to be? He wants to be in the midst of his church. And because Jesus is keenly aware of what is going on in the church, he is the one who's in the best position to evaluate the church. That's exactly what we discover here, that uh, what Jesus is doing in the seven messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now, last week, we began to examine his evaluation of the church at Ephesus. Now, here's what I want you to, I want to point something out to you that after I point out to you, you say, well, that's pretty obvious. Okay, good. Um, where does his evaluation of that church begin? You work for somebody, and uh, it's time for your yearly review. They bring you in, and they set you down, and they say, uh, Mr. Wilson, it's uh, time for your uh, year, yearly evaluation. You know where they're going to start? With Mr. Wilson. Where does this evaluation start with? Jesus say, so what do you mean? Well, look at verse one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Well, you would think he'd jump right in and uh, start critiquing them. But what's he say here? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Wait a minute. We have the vision of the son of man repeated here. So when Jesus starts his evaluation of the church at Ephesus, you know where he starts? He starts with himself. And he does this intentionally. Say, why does he do this intentionally? Because he wants them to understand a couple of things. One, he wants to understand that he is in the right position and has the authority to properly evaluate them. But second, he also wants them to know, look at me, look at my sovereignty, look at my authority, so that when the days of persecution come, I want you to look to me and you'll be strengthened and you will be comforted. So therefore, in our lives, when the tough times come, where do we look first? Do we turn inward? Do we engage in deep introspection? Or do we look to Christ and we get his perspective on the situation? So he wants them to acknowledge that he is more than qualified to give them the right evaluation and that he is there in their midst, protecting them, guiding them, and encouraging them. So he begins by reminding them of who he is and where he is at, and he knows them because he's among them. And then after establishing these two important facts, we see that Jesus goes on to highlight their positives. And that's what we looked at last week. He commended them for their hard work and defending orthodox biblical doctrine. He commended them for their patient endurance in the face of the trials and the persecution and the the darkness of the culture in which they found themselves. But not all is right in the church. Look at verse 4. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. By this time in the history of the church at Ephesus, it's a a second-generation church. Approximately 40 years have passed since the church was established and they received this letter. So many of the original members of the church at Ephesus have probably passed off the scene. So the church was now made up of the children and the grandchildren of the original founding members of the church. And what was the Lord's problem with this church? Jesus said, They were guilty of abandoning the love they had at first, which means they stopped loving as they had previously loved. You may have a translation that says you have left your first love. So the question we need to answer is what is this first love that they have abandoned? Say why is it important that we know this? Because remember this, applies to us corporately as a church, and it applies to us individually as members of the church, as members of God's body. So if we are to remember and repent and to go back and do the works that we did at first, we have to know what that is, right? So let's do our best to try and determine what it is. Now, there are some who believe that even though the church at Ephesus fought hard and holding the line against false uh, teachers and false teaching, that somewhere along the line, they had cooled in their love for Christ. The second generation church did not have the love for Christ that the first generation did. And this is, a, this is still a danger today, especially for people who grow up in Christian homes. You know, the first generation church, they fight the battles Like Ephesus, they held the line. They were in the heat of the battle all the time. But then the second generation comes around and they know nothing of the fight. It's kind of like what we see in our culture, right? We refer to the greatest generation, those who fought in World War II. But now we have a generation, mm, they don't appreciate the sacrifice. They don't appreciate everything that went into that. And that can happen in churches as well. So there are those who believe that they didn't have the love for Christ that the first generation did. There are others who believe that that what Jesus has in mind is not a decline in their love for him, but a decline in their love for others. Oh, they loved each other in the church, but outside the church, not so much. Dennis Johnson Writes this An embattled church surrounded by enemies can turn inward in self protection and suspicion. And they were an embattled church just by nature of the culture that they were in. And after a while, perhaps they grew weary of the fight. They do what a lot of people do they don't want to fight anymore, so they withdraw. They turn inward. And I think that characterizes many churches today. They love right doctrine. They'll fight for right doctrine. But in their love of doctrine, they no longer love people. And listen, I'm speaking to some, perhaps many, who hold to Reformed theology. Reformed churches are guilty of this. We will fight to the death to protect the tulip. But our neighbor can go to hell. We won't reach out to them. So Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, you've abandoned your first love. Many churches have adopted the attitude of our four and no more. And they see themselves as put upon and have a little pity party every Sunday never considering that there's a thousand plus people all around them who are going to spend eternity somewhere. And God has plopped us right in the middle here to do what? To paint the walls, to shine the floors, cut the grass? No, to evangelize them. See, the paint on the wall and the shine on the floor and the cutting of the grass is simply a means to an end. We don't, we're not here to maintain a building. We're here to advance the kingdom, amen? So is Jesus referring to their love for him? Is Jesus referring to their love for other people? Or could Jesus have both in mind? That's certainly a possibility. Leon Morris writes this, it may be that a general attitude is meant referring to love for, uh, a lack of love for Christ and a lack of love for other people. He goes on to say, Abandoned is a strong term. They had completely abandoned their first flush of enthusiastic love. They had yielded to the temptation ever present to Christians to put all their emphasis on sound teaching. In the process, they lost love without which all else is nothing. Right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? If I don't have love, who cares how brilliant a theologian I am if I don't have love? Okay. Okay. But could there be another option? Could there be something else that Jesus has in mind? Now, it's the weekly time to put on our thinking caps, amen? Could their abandoning of their first love be tied to their purpose, i.e., They're functioning as a lampstand. So like we did last week, let's trace another line of reasoning and see where it may lead us. Now here's where we're going to begin. Keep this concept in mind. The punishment is always related to the crime. The punishment is always related to the crime. And the punishment threatened by Jesus had to do with their functioning as a lampstand. So let's look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What's the crime? They have abandoned the love they had at first. Now, let's pay close attention to what Jesus says next. If not, I w- if not, in other words, if you don't rectify, if you don't repent, if you don't recognize your offense, if not, I will come to you. And what is the punishment? And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Again, what is the crime? They had abandoned the love they had at first. What would be the punishment if they did not repent? He would remove their lampstand. Now, with the Lord's words fresh in our mind, let's return to the purpose of a lampstand. The purpose of a lampstand is to give off light. And as the church, they were to shine the light of the gospel into and onto the dark culture of Ephesus. They were to shine the light not on themselves, but on Christ. But they had become so engaged in fighting for the faith and contending for the faith and defending the faith, they had been on high alert for so long against false teachers and false teaching that they had become unbalanced in their ministry. They were diligent in defending the gospel, but they had become deficient in distributing the gospel. They would gladly defend the gospel, but they weren't so glad to distribute the gospel. Was it possible that they had a head for Christ, but not a heart for Christ? The church's initial love led them to be fervent witnesses. They were a bright shining light that shone throughout the city of Ephesus. But they were no longer the diligent witnesses that they once were. They had abandoned the love they had at first for telling others about Christ. So this abandonment of the love that they had at first resulted in a loss of evangelistic zeal. One commentator says the first generation exerted extraordinary effort so that in Ephesus the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power he's referring to Acts 19:20 So Jesus said that unless you repent and return to doing the works that you did at first he would come and do what? He would come and remove their lampstand he would completely remove their witness now, to show you that I'm not completely mad and grasp me into straws, go to Revelation chapter 11, verses three and four, and let me show you something. Look at verses three and four. And I will grant authority to my two... What's it say? Witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, verse 4 is an explanation. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two, what's it say? Lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So what's the point? To be a lampstand is to be a witness. If they would not witness, they would no longer be a lampstand. If they wouldn't shine the light, they would lose the light. So the work that they did at first was that of being zealous, being a zealous witness for Christ and the gospel. G.K. Beale helps us here. He writes, The idea is that they no longer express their former zealous love for Jesus by witnessing to him in the world. This is why Christ chooses to introduce himself as he does in verse 1. His statement that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands is intended to remind the introverted readers that their primary role in relation to their Lord should be that of a light, a light of witness to the outside world. So what was the love that they had at first, but they had since been abandoned? They had lost their gospel zeal. They gladly defended Christ, but they weren't nearly as willing to share Christ as they did at the first. And so Jesus says, remember, repent, and do the works that you did at first, and if you won't, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. I'll come and I'll remove your witness. You realize that came true? Sadly, that came true. There is no lampstand in Ephesus today. The church doesn't exist there. What happens when our love for Christ cools? Well, we fail to love others as we should. And that is reflected in our lack of witnessing for Christ. So I think there's a little bit of truth in all three of these that we've looked at. Obviously, they had lost some love for Christ. They weren't in, as in love with Christ as the first generation was. And because, listen, whenever our love for Christ slips, fails, diminishes, it will always follow that we will not love others the way that we should. And when we don't love others the way that we should, you know what? We don't witness. You say you love Christ. Do you bear witness to Christ? The key to being an effective witness is not the training in your head. It's the love in your heart. Have you, like Jesus, assigned the proper value to the church? Do you see the church as precious? Do you see it as valuable? I trust that you now have a better understanding of the purpose of the church The functioning of the church, the church is to function as a lampstand that shines the light of Christ into a culture darkened with sin. Do you understand that? We're not here to make ourselves feel good, slap each other on the back. No, we're here to be a light. Do you see and do you understand that the church must be empowered by the Holy Spirit if it is to function as a witness to Christ. I hope this is not true of our church. I pray this is not true of our church. But if you ever walked into a church and you just felt something was off, maybe you describe the atmosphere as dead. It very well could be a church that is no longer operating under the power of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps they're relying upon the grand architecture of the building to draw people in or the programs that they put on every week to draw people in. Buildings do not convert people. Programs do not convert people. The Holy Spirit converts people. Do you understand that the lampstand has several tubes through which the oil was to flow in order for the light to shine? Say, what's your point? you are in Christ, you're a tube in the lampstand. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are, are you letting the light of the gospel be shown in your life? And I don't mean you have to go out here and, and stay in the middle of the road and wave the car down and say, I got 30 seconds, let me tell you the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. In the classroom in the office, on the factory floor, in the bank branch. You can be a witness in many ways. Do you understand that as an individual of Grace Community Church, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the light of the glorious gospel of Christ burns as brightly as it can? One of the first things I did when we bought this building was I had these super bright lights, one put on the porch, two on the side of the building. The neighbor's probably not thrilled about it. If you've ever been here at night or early in the morning, they're bright. You know why I put those lights there? I want people to know we were here. That's what the gospel does. It shines brightly, lets people know Christ is here.